Good morning. Oh, you can hear me. Yes, I can hear me. So I'm assuming you can hear me. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Natasha Austin. Um, I'm a member here. Actually, I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary with Trinity in July, which is crazy. Yay. Um, it's kind of nuts to think what God has done in the last decade of my life, if you knew me when I first came here. And that's um, hugely in part to the people in this community, past, present, and I have no doubt will continue to do so in the future. Um, before, well, first of all, the last time I spoke was in February, and you might be thinking, um, why am I sitting down? Because I usually, I'm like an actress at heart, so I love public speaking. I use my body as an instrument to help deliver the words that I'm saying. Um, I'm very emphatic when I talk, and not that scripture ever needs me, but I feel in particular this morning, the verses we're going to be reading are the heart of the gospel, and there is no more powerful message than the gospel, so I feel really convicted to take a seat and let the scripture be center stage this morning. Um, but before we get into the verses, uh, I really want to just mention that we are praying for everybody on the West Coast that are affected by the fires. Um, and also yesterday, Haiti had a 7.2 earthquake, and hundreds of people have lost their lives, if not more now, and there's threat of a tsunami coming, and just a lot of destruction and um, tragedy, and we're kind of going to talk about that this morning. So I want to open us in prayer and be praying for them as well as for us. Um, so Father God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to come together um, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ and worship you, to learn and glean from your word. Um, I pray for everyone that's been affected by these tragedies in the world, um, for a swift ending to that, for um, provisions uh, in the days, weeks, months, and years after. But God, more than that, I pray for your spirit to, to be in those um, places, God, for you to bring comfort and a sense of joy that surpasses understanding to everybody affected, whether they're there physically or have family there, God. I just pray um, that as we dig into this mes message today and talk about these things, um, that your truth will win out um, and that your voice and your words are all that we will hear. Um, I praise your name. Amen. So last week we looked at striving for peace, and this morning we're going to talk about being unshakable. Uh, last week's verses, Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, actually ended with an exhortation to not be like Esau, who looked at his birthright and gave it up for a single meal. And the entire book of Hebrews is actually written to give us truth about God so that we will not be like Esau, who failed to persevere and did not obtain the grace of God, but was lured into the death trap of short-term pleasure. The book of Hebrews could not make it clear that right knowing about God and how he works for us in our adversities is a key to right doing. And so the exhortations are not ways of getting God to act, but rather ways we act when we trust that God is already acting for us. Which leads us into today's verses, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, and our more right thinking or right knowing about what is true of us if we are Christian. All of it intended to help us not be like Esau. Now we're going to break the scriptures into two different chunks this morning, 18 through 25, and then 26 through 29. So we'll start with verse 18, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." Now, we're going to dig into the content of these verses, but first, I want to get the whole uh, structure in front of us. At the end of this first chunk, the author repeats the warning to not be like Esau, but just in different words. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And that's what Esau did. He considered what God had promised and what the life of faith would look like, and he said, yeah, no, I'm going to take the single meal. You can have the inheritance of God. And so verse 16 from last week and verse 25 this morning are both saying, don't be like that. Don't refuse God's voice of promise and of faith. But I have to be honest, when I first sat down uh, to pray about this sermon, I was not in a good place by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I honestly don't know how far off from Esau my heart was. But I was able to still read these verses and recognize that they were good ones, that this was a good message. But it felt obvious and one that I didn't necessarily need to study further. The message seemed clear and probably one we've all heard before. And so the familiarity of the message mixed with my very heavy soul left me kind of stumped. I kept reading these verses over and over again, trying to stir up something to say about them, but I kept coming up blank. I literally had nothing to say, which if you know me, you can understand how much of a shock that was. Um, if you don't know me, I'm implying that I like to talk. I usually have a lot to say. Uh, not always a good thing, but true nonetheless. And so I wrestled with this for weeks. I kept reading the verses, you know, trying or I guess kind of hoping for like a revelation or to see something new that would make me go, wow, I've never thought about that before. But still nothing. And my heart was still really heavy until uh, one day I had a thought. And I knew immediately it was the Holy Spirit prompting me with a simple question. And he said, why do you repeat yourself? Why do you repeat yourself? And I thought of three reasons. There may be more, but three came to mind right away. And the first one I just did, I repeated the question. Why did I do that? To make an obvious point. To alert whoever I'm speaking to that the question I'm asking is important. Or the statement that I'm making is important and I want you to hear it, ponder it, receive it. Another reason that I repeat myself, well, actually, first, anytime in the Bible that something's repeated, God is saying, hello, take note. In, everything is, in the Bible is important, but sometimes God highlights certain messages because they're really important. They're foundational. Another reason I repeat myself is because whatever I'm saying is so important that I don't want the person I'm telling to even risk forgetting about it. Think about someone that you love. Have you told them that I love you just one time and that's it? No. We tell the people we love that we love them all the time. Why? 
Are we afraid that they'll forget it? Not likely, but sometimes the message is so important to remind them that it's true that we gladly repeat ourselves. I cannot even tell you how many times a day I tell my kids that I love them. I don't think I could say it enough. Sometimes they actually say to me, too much love, mama, too much love. And the last reason I repeat myself is because someone actually did forget what I said. Like when I asked my husband to deposit a check, but a week later, it was still on the table, undeposited. So I picked up said check, took it over to him, and kindly repeated myself and reminded him that he needed to deposit the check. I repeated myself because he had clearly forgotten what I had said or asked. And so I sat with this for a bit, and I realized that everyone in this room or watching um, from home online falls into one of these three categories. You've either never heard this message before, and God has you here for a reason, and that reason is because he wants you to hear it, ponder it, receive it, it's foundational. Or you've heard this message before, maybe more times than you can count, but God never tires of, of telling you that he loves you. He wants to lavish his love on you some more. Or like me, you're in the last group, which like the group before, you've also heard this message more times than you can count. You know it to be true, and more importantly, you believe it, but the way that you're living or the way that you're feeling is as if you need to be reminded. So no matter what group you find yourself in, open your heart today and receive his love. So I'm going to put these verses into context, and then why don't we immerse ourselves in his ridiculous love as we read them again. As I said in the beginning, Hebrews is the message of God to man through his son, Jesus Christ. And there are two overarching themes of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ and then perseverance in Christ, especially in the face of persecution. And in the chapter right before where we find ourselves, so chapter 11, the overarching theme is recapping these like champions of faith. But in almost every one of the more than 24 references of faith, it's active obedience rather than trust. It's not, I trust God's got this, so I'm going to sit back and let him do his thing. It's, I trust God's got this, so I'm going to do what he's called me to do. It's not, this is hard, so I'm going to stay and wait out the storm. It's, this is hard, but I'm going to go out into the storm. I'm going to press forward in spite of the storm. I'm going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, persevere. Which brings us back to the first chunk of our verses this morning. And the structure of this portion of Hebrews 12 is a comparison. So I have another question for us this morning. Why do we compare things? If we have two options in front of us, what's the point in comparing one to the other? To highlight that one is better than the other. But what's interesting about this comparison is that normally, anytime someone is comparing life with Christ versus life without, it's typically believer-non-believer. But this is actually believer-believer just under the law versus the law fulfilled through Christ. To properly frame the rather scandalous message of Jesus, we need to ponder what life with God was like before Jesus. How much more do we appreciate things when we've known life without them? Take Google Maps, for example. I don't think the generations younger than me truly appreciate the blessing that is Google Maps on your phone, accessible with live updates at all times. Not that long ago, and <clears throat> I'm just going to call out that I'm fully aware I'm about to sound like one of those people who says, you know, I used to walk to school barefoot, uphill both ways, 50 miles every day. Um, but just go with me for a second. Not that long ago, 
If I wanted to go on a road trip, I had to put the directions into Google Maps, into my computer before I left my house and then print out those directions from MapQuest. And then I had to follow those directions no matter what. So avoiding an accident because Google warns you that one just happened 10 miles ahead, so hop off here and save yourself like five hours instead of being stuck at a standstill in excruciating pain because you have to pee so bad and you either hold it, pee yourself, or experience the shame of your friends trying to form a barrier around you so that everybody else doesn't see you peeing on the side of the road. You know, I'm not saying that that necessarily, possibly, definitely happened to me. I'm just saying personally, I truly appreciate the blessing that is Google Maps. So let's look at, at this comparison. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verses 18 through 21 is life with God before Jesus. I tremble with fear. This is not the awe fear that we see so often in the Bible. This was actual fear. The original text defines the word used here as exceedingly frightened or terrified. Before Christ, we were under God's judgment because we didn't have a mediator. We had to atone for our sins. There was genuine fear of God's righteous anger and wrath. And then verse 22 starts with but. What a beautiful word in this context. The original text uses the word Allah, A-L-L-A. How thankful are we that God didn't leave us with the old covenant, that he offered us a new way, a better way. How thankful I know I am for this Allah. Now the word Allah can mean several different things depending on what message you're trying to deliver and the preceding words that it serves to introduce. It can mean an objection, a restriction, or in this case, a transition to the cardinal matter. It transitions us from death to life. And a few other places in the Bible that this same word is used is Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Mark 9.22, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. John 8.26, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And our verse this morning, Hebrews 12.22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And if you don't know who that is, that's Christians, that's all of us. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verses 22 through 24 is life with God through Jesus. Christians, at conversion, we don't come to an earthly mountain. There, Christianity has no geographic center. We come to a heavenly city, a heavenly assembly, a divine judge, and most importantly, a mediator whose blood shed for our sins is the main voice we hear. All invisible, all spiritual, and therefore accessible anywhere. Sometimes we need to be reminded of life before Jesus. 
We cannot properly perceive the depths of his love and his grace until framed in the brilliance of his utter holiness, until we're gazing in awe at I am. Life before Jesus was the mountain of fear, where the speaking of God was such that they pleaded, no more, no more. Life with Jesus is the mountain of joy. We come to Jesus through his blood, and it says, I love you. I forgive you. I purchase you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will always be there for you. But don't get me wrong, we're still to have the fear of the Lord, but that fear no longer keeps us from his presence. It brings us to our knees, it lifts our eyes, it changes our hearts, and we move to a place of true reverence for our king. So let's look at the second chunk of these verses. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In Matthew 24, 7 through 8, the disciples actually asked Jesus, when is this going to happen? And he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I found it interesting that he refers to these signs as birth pains because I've had two kids, and let me tell you, the closer to birth that we get, the frequency of the pain increases and the intensity of the pain increases. But they're leading up to something wonderful, a birth of a child. It's painful, but it's full of hope. And so as we experience increasing disasters, catastrophes, tragedies, crises, tribulations, whatever you want to call them, whether in the world or in our lives personally, which... I don't think any of you would argue with me that we, we may have been experiencing lately. <laughs> Instead of questioning God and asking, why are you allowing this? We should be thanking him for his mercy and his hope because he's reminding us of his promise in verse 26 that he is bringing in a new kingdom. He doesn't want it to happen suddenly without warning. He's giving us chance after chance after chance to break free of our love from this world and believe in him, to place our faith in him, to shake people awake to the reality of the vulnerability of this world and the de desirability of the unshakable kingdom that he offers. This is mercy. So let's keep reading. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Only the things that we do for Christ will remain. Material things will be wiped out. One day, everything that is uncertain or unstable, anything that makes us feel insecure, insecure, will be removed, and the only thing that will remain is the rock-solid, unshakable kingdom of God. But look again at verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice, we've already received it. This is the great joy of being a Christian. We already have a kingdom, and our lives in Christ are unshakable. That doesn't mean that we will not be caught in the tragedies of this world. That does not mean 
safety for our bodies in this world. But it does mean that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what matter of persons ought we be? Spiritual people. We should be walking after the Spirit. We should be living in and through the Spirit. We should find our identity in Christ. And that is what the Bible encourages us to do all the way through. Saying that the life of the Spirit is superior to the life of the flesh. The world hates this message. It does not want to hear it. Identity in particular is a huge issue for so many people today. But the world has it twisted. Don't get lost in trying to identify who you are. Get lost in gazing in awe at I am. The key to living a spiritual life is found in verse 28. It says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe is the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs 1-7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what did we discover earlier? That right knowing leads to right doing. We need to lift our eyes from ourselves to him. But why do we ever need to be reminded of this message? Why do we forget this truth? Or if we don't actually forget it, why do we live as if we have? Why do we live as if we're still under God's judgment? Why do we act like we need to earn the grace of Jesus? If you didn't know, you can't earn it. If we needed to earn it, we'd all be in a heck of a lot of trouble because none of us would have it. That's the point. It's undeserved. It's why it's so ridiculously amazing. Comprehending that, the ridiculously amazingness of it all, leads to the fear of the Lord. So let's imprint some truth on our hearts this morning. Amen? When we think, does he delight in me? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 147.11. He delights in those who fear him. When we think, does he call me friend? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 25.14. His friendship is for those who fear him. When we think, will he grant me wisdom? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 111.10. It begins with the fear of the Lord. When we think, does he see the way I take? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 33.18. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. When we ask, is he for my good? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 31.19, his goodness is stored up for those who fear him. When we ask, can I turn from my sin? Psalm 16.6, yes, by the fear of the Lord. When we ask, does he love me? Imprint on our hearts, Psalm 103.11 and 17, his steadfast love is for those who fear him. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 29, for he is a consuming fire. Fire is an interesting phenomenon of nature. One thing you can say about fire is that it's everywhere. And there's this thing that they call aramacousis. That's a big word, but basically it just means the slow-burning nature of fire. Or a slow-burning fire of nature. That's what it means. <laughs> uh, so if you take like a piece of metal, for example, and put it outside, pretty soon you'll start to see little bronze specks on the metal. And that's oxidation, the slow-burning fire of nature. As nature starts to deteriorate that piece of metal, it starts to eat it away. And then you have fire itself, which is an interesting substance because it can also consume, but it also is used to transform into permanency. If you take a piece of alloy and put it in the fire and heat it, it turns it into steel, hardened and tempered through the fire. So fire is interesting because it can transmit some things to permanency while consuming others. It all depends on the material that it's working with. Who can escape the fire of God? No one. 
can escape the fire of God. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. The question is, what is it doing to you? And the answer, well, that depends on you. If you trust the promise of his unshakable kingdom and set your heart on it, then the fire, then the fire of God will refine you and transform you into permanency. But if you reject the one who speaks from heaven and, like Esau, prefer the fragile, shaky kingdom of this world, then when you meet the fire of God, you will meet it as destruction and not as deliverance. So I plead with everyone here today to listen to the voice of God, who by the blood of Jesus says, I love you. I've already forgiven you. I purchased you. I will cleanse you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will give you an unshakable kingdom, and I will always be there for you if you trust me. Trust me. At this time, I'd like to invite the band back up. If you're here today, and you haven't given your life to the Lord, and you want to take that step or learn more about it, we would love to pray with you. If you're at home watching, you can mark that on your Connect card, and someone will follow up with you. But the beauty of the gospel is that the work's already been done. All we have to do is humble ourselves and recognize that there's a Father in heaven who loves you, who offers the free gift of grace through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. Forgiveness and the hope of everlasting life and an unshakable kingdom. And then we open our arms and we say, here I am, a sinner, but I receive it. I receive your love. This is now my portion forever and ever. Amen.